to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. This is a good one. Oh my goodness, Carolyn. I'm so excited about our episode for so many reasons. I know, I know. We have uh, this month a special guest, which we are going to introduce. Uh, our guest, you know, we're, we're going to go into more depth, but it is Julie Rivette, who is Dashiell Hammett's granddaughter. Yes. Yes, we're discussing the Thin Man and all things Hammett today. Yes, all things. But before we do that, I think we want to cover our sponsor and our listener of the episode. We do. We have a a really special sponsor who's done a lot for the episode today. Um, That is Linden Botanicals. Linden Botanicals is a Colorado-based company that sells the world's healthiest herbal teas and extracts. Their team has traveled the globe to find the herbs that offer the best science-based support for stress relief, energy, memory, mood, kidney health, joint health, digestion, and inflammation. U.S. orders over $75 ship free. To learn more, visit lindenbotanicals.com and use the code MYSTERY to get 15% off your first order. And they are an excellent sponsor. You should do that. We also have a really exciting listener this month. You may have heard of him. He was our guest last month, and he's also a subscriber. That's Dan Drake of California. And if you have not had the treat of listening to Dan, then please go back and listen to our episodes on the Nine Tailors. His expertise is incredible around Dorothy Sayers. Dan We appreciate you so much. We appreciate you as a subscriber as well as a guest. And um, you will be getting a special gift coming to you in the mail. It's a sticker and then a special sticker. Dan Drake is the co-founder of Autodesk. And he is one of, I think, probably the world's foremost experts on Dorothy L. Sayers. Absolutely. It was impressive to hear Mm -hmm. his knowledge on Sayers. Absolutely. So, Sarah, if somebody wanted to, you know... So, so he is our sponsor now, or he yeah, is he's a subscriber. subscriber. So you okay. too can be a subscriber. Subscribers get additional benefits. They uh, are eligible for extra special content, as well as extra special gifts. We have limited edition stickers coming up um, from season one that you can't get anywhere else. So go on our website, subscribe, um, rate us. Talk to us. We love to hear from our listeners. Absolutely. Well, today's guest is Julie M. Rivette. Julie is a granddaughter of Dashiell Hammett, an advocate for Hammett's life and literature, a trustee for his estate, and an essayist, editor, and lecturer. Working with Hammett biographer Richard Lehman, she has edited six books by or about her grandfather, including Selected Letters of Dashiell Hammett, 2001, Return of the Thin Man, 2012, the Hunter and Other Stories, 2013, and The Big Book of the Continental Op, 2017. Her interviews and essays have been published at home and abroad, helping to maintain her grandfather's legacy and introduce his writings to new generations. 
She lives with her husband in Orange County, California, where she has raised two daughters and earned degrees in American Studies and Communication Studies from California State University, Long Beach. Welcome, Julie. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So exciting. And uh, just to get everybody literally on the same page, we're going to talk about uh, a quick summary of The Thin Man by Dashiell Hammett. So it's a classic detective novel that introduces charming married couple Nick and Nora Charles and their pet schnauzer, Asta. Nick is a retired private detective and Nora is his wealthy and sophisticated young wife. Set in Prohibition-era New York City during the holiday season, the story begins as Nick learns about the disappearance of his former client, Claude Winant. To uncover the truth behind the disappearance, Nick will have to draw upon his investigative savvy and navigate quite a few parties and speakeasies. The novel is known for its charismatic lead characters, stylish prose, and witty dialogue. In the end, The Thin Man is less of a hard-boiled noir in the vein of Red Harvest and the Maltese Falcon than a highly entertaining blend of mystery and social comedy. Today, we're excited to talk about The Thin Man, our first book selection of 2024. You can learn more about all our 2024 book selections, along with our 2022 and 2023 book selections, at teatonicandtoxin.com and on Facebook and Instagram at teatonicandtoxin. An exciting way to start 2024. I know. I, when we mapped out our 2024 reading list, one book each month, and I realized, you know, we were starting 1934 roughly, and we're going to move to 1939 by the end of the year. It just seemed so fitting to start with The Thin Man. Yeah, yeah, I love that it was holiday-themed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie, I, I was reading some some interviews with you ahead of time. Yeah. And you enlightened me on something I had been doing wrong, and that was saying your grandfather's <laughs> name. Could <laughs> uh. you share with everyone? <laughs> I joke, this is one of my missions as I go around and speak to Mm -hmm. people is to correct their pronunciation. So it is Deschiel. It comes from the French Deschiel, which was his mother's maiden family name. So they were Mm. originally French Huguenots who fled uh, to Scotland and then to the U.S. So think of it in the French way and the C-H is pronounced like Chicago or the S-H is pronounced like Chicago, um, mm-hmm. but it's Dashiel, and apparently he did correct people occasionally. Although sometimes he went by Sam, sometimes he went by Dash, but he did correct people at least sometimes on the pronunciation. So, Why did he go by Sam? Um, you know, I think well, you don't have mm-hmm. to explain to people how to pronounce it. That would probably be. <laughs> uh, but his no, his first name is Samuel, mm-hmm. so it's Samuel Dashiel oh. Hammett. So, like Sam Spade, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, uh, that's a nice connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is Sam Spade named after himself? Um, I think it's probably a safe bet to say that's at least part of it. Um, mm-hmm. He did say that um, he, in a in an introduction he wrote for a later edition of the Maltese Falcon, he did identify where some of the characters came from. Mm-hmm. But he said Sam Spade was based on a dream detective and what you know many detectives thought they would thought they you know could be in their kind of cockier moments. Hmm. So yeah, but it, there's a lot of there's a lot of Sam you know Samuel DeShiel Hammett in Sam Spade. Really and and there is a Nick Charles too. They just come from different parts, you know, different 
water sides of the watershed. Hmm. Okay. Um, so can you, I mean, tell us about your experience with your grandfather? I believe you had um, a, a childhood visit with him, but possibly only one. What was that like? Correct. So we were living um, up in Camarillo, my, my mother and father, and I have an older brother and sister. My mother was pregnant with my younger sister. Um, so this is 19 spring, uh, spring, early summer of 1960. My parents must have known. I mean, obviously, my parents knew that he, my grandfather was dying. Um, at mm-hmm. that point, I think he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer. So he was on Martha's Vineyard Island with Hellman, with Lillian Hellman in the house that they shared. Mm-hmm. Um, so we flew. My dad was a, a pilot during World War II. And he kept up his pilot's license afterwards. And, you know, he was just a young family living on an ordinary income. And so, but we flew a Cessna, like a five-seater Cessna from California all the way to Boston. Um, and then and then back again with some stops along the way. But you can imagine, so my mother pregnant, three small children in the back um, and flew all the way. So we spent about a week on Martha's Vineyard Island. I have just a couple of snippets of memories, um, mm-hmm. largely involving the large, one of the poodles. Uh, he's, he and Hillman raised those big standard poodles. So, mm-hmm. But I, I kind of, at this point, they're like little vignette snapshots, and that's that's all I got. So I didn't get to know my grandfather until many, many, many years later, um, you know, as an adult and really doing the research, starting with the letters, um, really kind of brought him to life for me. And then mm-hmm. working with my mother on her memoir. Um, so it's uh, it's been a real adventure. And, and honestly, I mean, this sounds cliche, but it's really been an honor to, to work with the estate. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh, Julie, you sent us a picture of yourself on that visit, which is adorable. <laughs> which is, oh, thank you. Cool. Love it. Um, and so when you went back to school, um, mm-hmm. I believe you had two small children, and then you, you went back to college. And um, I pursued American studies, I think, and communication studies. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking you might actually do a deep dive and what's become, you know, from what it can, it seems like a lifelong right. passion for, for doing this research, really investigative research. There's a lot to uncover and it must be yeah. complex and layered. And, and did you have a sense you might be doing this work? Um, so I went back to school about the same time I started working on the letters book with Richard Lehman. And I used to joke I did three things, three H's, housework, homework, and hammock work. Um, <laughs> it, was a, it was a busy time. So I, and, uh, I went back and I wasn't sure what I was going to do and I, I didn't like what I was doing. So um, I took a public speaking class. And the teacher kind of said, you know, you're pretty good at this. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I started thinking about it and looking at it. So I did my uh, undergrad with communication studies. And then I went ahead and, oh, and then I added, a, a, well, I was going to do a minor in American studies, but it was like one mm-hmm. more class and you get a double major. Mm-hmm. No problem. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then at the age of 50, I started grad school and I got a master's in communication studies. At that point, I was... Um, you know, working with the estate and doing public speaking. So it came in really handy, both um, because I did uh, rhetorical, that was my interest was rhetoric. So the persuasive power of language and speech and communication. Um, 
so it did dovetail very nicely and I love going into the archives and digging through those mm-hmm. real papers and uh, yeah. and then getting up and talking to people about it so yeah it worked out great and I um, I learned a lot about my grandfather sometimes I could overlap mm-hmm. my master's thesis has to do with the Hollywood 10 and mm-hmm. uh, the that communist era mm-hmm. so um, so I, it all yes it all doves tails uh, nicely so and your your grandfather spent I think some months in a federal prison? He did. He spent about five months um, in jail and then in prison in Kentucky uh, for taking Mm -hmm. the fifth, which he should have been able to do. He took the fifth, Mm -hmm. um, refused to answer questions, not in front of the HUAC, although it was the same time period, but in front of a federal court. um, And it had to do with uh, communists. He was president of a, a liberal organization and president of their bail fund and that bail fund had provided money for 10 communists who'd been arrested under the smith act and some of them didn't show up when they should have after bail and so my grandfather and another fellow were hauled in you know where did they go she didn't know there's no reason they would have told him but the big question was who were the who were the people who donated to the bail fund and he wouldn't give that answer either so you know, he did his time, came out, and that, that was it. He didn't really have a choice. He wasn't going to rat out, you know, right. his friends. So. Right. And you, you sort of see that that ethic in Sam Spade, um, the, the Continental Op. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, Nick Charles is harder for me, maybe not for either of you, but harder for me to pinpoint. He's lovely on the page and lovely on the screen. Like, I... I I adore Nick Charles, but I ha- I know maybe less about how he's wired. Whereas with Sam Spade and the Continental Op, they have their own code and they're following that code pretty religiously. I feel like that was a very Nick Charles thing to mm. do personally, because there's these moments where he gets you know shot by Morelli, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Are you going to press charges?" And he's like, "I don't know." <laughs> and he's like yeah. known in the speakeasies as somebody you can trust so, to the point that yeah. the police really got suspicious of mm-hmm. him to be like, yeah. why is Morelli spilling his guts to you right. when he wouldn't talk yeah. to us? Yeah, so yeah, right. The bad guys could trust him, uh, you know, to kind of honor his word. So yeah, mm-hmm. th- there is that. Um, it is funny. I, I think that, well, there's always elements of the author in, in characters, in, in almost mm-hmm. all characters. And mm-hmm. there, there is a lot of my grandfather in Sam Spade. And I, I see that, I love that, that's my favorite of the novels. But there's also a lot of my grandfather in Nick Charles. Um, the, the difference is, during the time he was writing The Maltese Falcon, he was a struggling writer. He wanted to make literature, he wanted to make a name for himself. Mm-hmm. He was broke, he was wanted to pay the bills, he had two little kids to feed, and he was struggling with that and with illness, and so he was extraordinarily ambitious and driven. Well, the other side, he gets to 1934, he's making $100,000 a year in the middle of the Depression. Um, he's he, He's thinking about writing for Hollywood, which even then, you know, writers felt they were kind of selling out um, themselves mm-hmm. to do that. Um, he's he, People are lined up, you know, bread lines in the street, and here he's, you know, living in the Beverly Wilshire or wherever else. So he was, you know, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance going on there, a lot of frustration with himself and embarrassment. He wanted to 
move on and but he was trapped then in this detective mode and that's where mm-hmm. people would pay him uh you know yeah. what they would pay him for so yeah he's he and he drank to you know to kind of numb that pain uh so it it is both sides he does still have i think he wants to have that ethic but he's been tempted away from it by all the booze and the mm-hmm. self conflict and the money mm-hmm. um so interesting. It's a, it's it's yeah. a he's a kind of a sad character in a way. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's he's very jolly, but it, there's a you know a disappointed edge to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so for a while he's writing for a pulp magazine called I think the Black Mask. Just Black then, Mask. Yeah. Just Black Mask. Sorry about that. And uh, and then he's starting to publish books, and then eventually moves on to Hollywood and I mean that's quite a progression and it must have been sort of a culture shock or some kind of a shock going from one to the next to the next with you know in in 1934 Hollywood because I'm so naive about that period seems to me that oh well that you know it was in the early stages of Hollywood and yet it already had sort of a a notoriety for you know the place where good writers sell out and where glitz and glamour is more important than content and and so forth yeah uh yes definitely um it was easy and the, the money was huge compared to you know the to compare to books uh so they could if you watch uh, barton fink the cohen brothers movie mm-hmm. barton fink is a good one mm-hmm. to watch kind of for this period um mm-hmm. although it's not based on my grandfather exactly but it's there are a lot of similarities um but yeah, he he did go down to Hollywood um, early as in like 1928. He went down to try to sell to Fox News, um, mm-hmm. didn't sell any, but he was very aware of it. And he started being aware of it as he was writing um, mm-hmm. and to write filmable stories, uh, you know, because that's that's where the money was. Um, but yeah, and, and you have to remember too, so the talkies were like 1927, 26, 27. So mm-hmm. we're just a couple of years in. So they are desperate mm-hmm. for writers who can write dialogue. Um, oh, so in the, the jazz singer was the first, um, you know, talkie, but the first all talking film that they talked about was Lights of New York. And it's a crime fiction film. And they made mm-hmm. it for like $25,000, and it was hugely successful. So it became obvious that crime fiction was a good topic um, for mm-hmm. the talkies. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, it was definitely in demand. Yeah. That's oh, fascinating. Uh, and Julie, we, we have a lot of these, you know, as our book club goes through kind of the history of mystery from beginning to end, most... I say most all of the writers are no longer with us <laughs> so it's very, yeah. it's very fascinating you know that you were kind of directing the literary estate like what does that work involve can you tell us a little bit about it yeah so I wouldn't directing the literary estate is an overstatement um there are four I, four, I have three siblings um two of us are trustees for the estate my brother Evan um and he's involved with the estate, and he's he's an attorney, so he advises um, in that direction as well. Um, the other trustee is Richard Lehman, who is the originally a Hammett biographer, um, but he's also a publisher and has expertise that neither Everton nor I have in the publishing industry because he does pub- mm-hmm. he is a publisher himself and content creator. So uh, the three of us kind of work together. 
So we do get people who approach us with ideas um, uh, who we typically send to the agents, assuming they're not Looney Tunes. Well, we usually send the Looney Tunes <laughs> ones also go to the agents. Mm -hmm. That's what they're there for. Um, Rick and I have done quite a bit of public speaking, um, you know, at schools and libraries and One City Reads One Book programs. Mm -hmm. So we've done that. And, you know, I kind of represent stay in touch with the, the film noir foundation our our friends in san francisco at john's grill uh so kind of put a face on it um mm -hmm. it's it's interesting um i have occasionally done a panel with a ross mcdonald expert and mm -hmm. a um chandler expert and me mm -hmm. and then we have a moderator mm -hmm. uh, denise hamilton a, a mystery writer who kind of organizes us um, mm -hmm. and it didn't really occur to me until i started doing this panel that they don't have family i mean they have no living descendants on either side um, and it was like oh we do actually so the role I think because we have affection for the work, we, you know, there's expertise, but there's also this great affection for the work and a loyalty to make sure that it's cared for um, in a responsible way um, and exploited in ways that respect the work. Yeah, that's you know. such a unique aspect that you have personally, you know, especially in reading all these books we got through and when we got to Hammett, I have to say, I felt like he was larger than life, you know, it was like a huge right turn <laughs> in, yeah. in terms of style and content and what he was writing. I was, I was just like, wow, oh my goodness, this, this character and this, you know, like compilation of work went to you, he's also your grandfather mm -hmm. and, yeah. and you're getting to know him and through so much almost kind of research. Yeah. What has that been like sort of getting to know your grandfather through these avenues? Mm -hmm. And kind of balancing that as a trustee. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's uh, it's been an honor and a privilege and a joy um, to really get in and see those things. And I don't know. I think maybe I bring a little a little something to those papers. And I've occasionally, you know, seen things that others haven't noticed. When we were in the archives in Texas, um, we, there's some unfinished and stories and unpublished stories in there, and they're rough types with pencil edits all over them and uh, you know I noticed little check marks or underlines in certain things and I, I think there's a meaning to that but nobody else had ever paid attention to it. Um, I noticed uh, one page had been cut in half and at a certain point it was very hard to notice but it, it had been cut and a little strip had been pasted in into the middle of the page with like two lines of text and then it had been so neatly pasted back together that you, it was almost imperceptible. The only reason I noticed it is because the bottom of the page had been folded up because it was too, they, instead of cutting it, they folded it up and that's what tipped mm. me to it. Um, so, you know, it is, it's, it's personal. Uh, I remember reading a letter from my grandmother to the publisher saying, please, do you know where Mr. Hammett is? He hasn't sent us any money in a while and the children need shoes and good food. And the publisher writing back and saying, we don't know where he is either. We're sorry, but we will, you know, we'll, we'll let him know you're looking for him. Um, so that was when his drunken, you know, drunken period when he was off with Lillian Hellman. He did, he, he did support the family. He did have a relationship with my grandmother and his two daughters. Um, and that, well, that's another thing I learned. I didn't realize 
that he really had a continuing relationship with my grandmother. Um, it was more like a brother-sister. Um, she was not, she, she was a lovely woman. She was not his intellectual equal. Hmm. Um, but she, you know, she stayed home and took care of those two little girls. And he, until the 19, well, there was some irregularity, but until the 50s when he was blacklisted, that was their sole income. Um, wow. So, um, and people say he, there are some people who will say he abandoned his family. That gets my hackles up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, he didn't. He didn't live with them. You know, my mother kind of considered Lillian Hellman to be his second wife. Although, you know, obviously they weren't married. But mm-hmm. that was the way it looked. It was embarrassing for my grandmother because mm-hmm. they were very public. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he did not abandon them. Um, you know, if you see the pictures of my mother and my grandfather on her wedding day, you know, kind of sitting together, relaxed and happy, uh, you know, you, it's a different picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, I don't know, it's so emotional, I feel like, to try and and navigate that. And you worked with your mother, correct, on a book of his letters? Uh, yes. After my aunt died, my mother inherited a cache of letters and then combined with hers, uh, the ones that she had kept, and then combining with the ones that we found through research and antiquarian book dealers and archives. Um, so I worked with her. And then at the same time, um, and this is when Rick Lehman came and worked with us as an editor for both these books, um, at the same time, Rick and I were organizing the letters and then going to her with questions. If you get a chance, the footnotes are wonderful in that book. I mm, learned so yeah. much. Um, and she, her memories contributed to that. But at the same time, she was writing her memoir, Desheel Hammond, A Daughter Remembers. And we were able to put in all the new photos that we'd found in that book. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, so I did work her, with her on both of those. And she's still, she's 97. She's still mm. alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, we still need her signature on things, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And as far as Lillian Hellman goes, I think you, you have, had never had a relationship really with her. No, no, no. I mean, I met her the, the week, uh, we spent on Martha's Vineyard Island. And then mm-hmm. again, I think it was 1984, in 1983 or 84, she was staying, um, I think it was William Wyler's house up in Beverly Hills and invited my mother to come for lunch. And so mm-hmm. my mother's not much of a driver. And so I went up with her and we had lunch with Lillian Hellman that one day. And that's, other than that, you know, there's been, uh, well, she died, she died shortly after that, uh, within mm-hmm. a year or so after that. Um, so it's, it's, uh, I can't say I had any relationship with her. And then, under the trusts were set up under Lillian Hellman's will, mm-hmm. uh, so which is interesting. I am a trustee under the will of Lillian Hellman. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is there like a a short version you can tell us of kind of how that transition took place? Okay, to give you the Reader's Digest uh, (laughs) capsule edition, uh, when my grandfather died in 1961, the government of, the federal government and the New York state government claimed he owed something like $60,000 in back taxes, which is a huge amount. Um, Some of that, no doubt, was vindictive. Uh, You know, the the IRS had gone after him for being a Mm -hmm. communist. Um, Mm -hmm. 
so he only had he didn't he was had been living off his veterans pension the last few years of his life so he really had no money in hand random house was holding close to ten thousand dollars in escrow um so what happened is the irs says well you know make us a deal and so lillian hellman who was the executrix of the account at that point made a deal they would auction off the rights to everything my grandfather ever wrote and whatever that auction brought in would go to the IRS and it would pay off the debt. So that was the deal. Hellman wrote to my mother and my aunt and said, you know, we can do this. Do you want to go in with me? We'll, we'll buy it. The minimum bid is $5,000. $5, and my mother wrote back and said, yes, of course, tell me where to send the money and how much you need. Lillian later wrote back and said, it was so sad, strange and chilling that I didn't hear from you. <gasps> yes. So, yes. So Lillian Hellman and her friend Arthur Cohen bought the rights to everything my grandfather ever wrote for the minimum bid of $5,000. So she had complete control. Um, eventually, she did do some good things under her tenure. She got the reissues done, which is, a, which is good after kind of the, in the 60s, so the blacklist had faded. Um, and she kind of kept things going, but there were some malfeasance there too. Um, so anyways, when she died, I'm trying to think. Yes, when she died, she set up a trust for her own, one, two trusts, one for her own works and one for my grandfather's work. And she named three of her friends to be trustees. Um, we had nothing. And the, I think um, a portion of the proceeds would go to my mother, but it's like the, a huge percentage went to the actual trustees. Mm. Uh, so go down the road a while and through the copyright extension law we reclaimed managed to reclaim through a negotiated settlement control over the novels so my mother directly controls the novels at this point my brother the lillian hellman's trust retains control of everything else basically including uh the short stories so uh Rick Lehman, my brother, and myself are all trustees under the will of Lillian Hellman, and we have signature power on the short stories. Okay. So that's the way it stands for now. So it's Com complicated, complicated and very frustrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I feel yeah. like you've done a wonderful job so. keeping, keeping his work alive and going. You know, nobody's kind of... It's, he hasn't fallen into obscurity in the least. Oh, no. it's one, and we have the movies to thank for that, too. Um, <laughs> so it, it does make a difference in, you know, modern culture. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Yep, yep, with, yep. with the Maltese Falcon, Sam Spade, the, the story of the Maltese Falcon is so original. It's just, you know, we in, in Teutonic and Toxin had been reading a lot of the cozy British mysteries the agatha christies and you know the dorothy sayers and all of this and then you come to maltese falcon and it's like you've entered uh, you know you're on another planet in another you know period of time yeah and it's so shockingly different to what degree do you think dashiell hammett knew that he was doing something that was just it was going yeah. to sort of change it was going to contribute to this modernist you know period of, of writing and, and the, the style of writing, but it was also going to change mystery. Yeah. I, at some point, I think he did come to that realization, probably, maybe not in the big, very beginning, you know, he started trying to write poetry and little 
um, clever, more like New Yorker style little short stories. Um, and that didn't, but he was, and then he was guy, you know, probably advised, hey, use your private investigator's experience to write crime fiction. So at first, I mean, he really needed to put bread on the table. I mean, he had tuberculosis, he was very ill, needed to pay the bills, and it was, you know, pennies a word, but that was a lot of groceries. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in that, but once I think he started, he, once he started, uh, he, he he became more ambitious. So Red Harvest is, is a terrific book, um, mm-hmm. and he's developing, I think, his, his talents and his ideas um, during that time when he, about the time he was writing The Maltese Falcon, said he wrote, uh, just about the time he was, he was done writing, he wrote to uh, Blanche Knopf, and he said, uh, something about making it was about making literature out of the detective story he said it's not i'm not talking about myself necessarily but someday somebody's going to make literature out of it out of it and i'm selfish enough to have my hopes <laughs> so really with the falcon that's that's where he was going with that um he was he read widely i mean he was really an a voracious reader of mm-hmm. all kinds of materials so yeah he knew where he stood in the canon Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he knew how f- how in you know how durable it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, his influence would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Raymond Chandler said that Hammett took murder out of the drawing room and put it in the back in the back alley where it belonged. Yeah, <laughs> which is yeah, it's incredible. Funny. Yeah, he he wrote that in the Simple Art of Murder that was published in uh, I think the Atlantic in the mid 40s while my grandfather was up in Alaska serving in the army during World War II and it's one of the few things he read that he really liked that essay and he actually typed up um, almost the whole essay and sent it to my mother oh, or my, maybe it was my grandmother but yeah so it really did you know touch him that Chandler mm-hmm. had said those things about him absolutely so, yeah yeah uh, and then using these three books sort of as a baseline you know, um, Red Harvest, The Maltese Falcon, and The Thin Man, these are three very different stories. I mean, the first one, Red Harvest, is it's a bloodbath. It is <laughs> violent and it's but it's 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 like, you know, it's hard to turn away, right? I I kept flipping I had to know what was happening <laughs> next, but every page of it was shocking and just yeah. stunning for the period. And then Maltese Falcon is obviously a work of literature that has lived on and and I believe will continue to live on. And The Thin Man feels so much more like a social comedy. Mm -hmm. Three different protagonists, three very different stories. So uh, can you talk a little bit about this progression of the stories? Yeah. So uh, I think, as we said, so he was coming up, uh, the, the Red Harvest, the protagonist is the Continental Op, who was the most uh, durable character in his short stories. There's something like, I think, 20 Continental Op stories. And so originally Red Harvest was three or four of those stories, um, you know, in episodes. Uh, So yeah, he's rough. I think it's interesting to think about the Continental Op as an employee, um, because it does make a difference. So it's modeled on Pinkerton's agency. You know, his the Continental Agency is not Mm -hmm. modeled on Pinkerton's. Um, So he has a his duty is to his employer. Uh, he has a duty to justice, but really it's getting the job done and a duty to his employer. 
Um, so and you can talk, he talks about the old man and sometimes he doesn't exactly tell the old mm-hmm. man the, exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah. uh, he does fudge here and there. But it's a different, a different little bit of a different perspective on the detective business. So Sam Spade is self-employed. So he only has to please, you know, himself and his own sets of ethics, and uh, and the client. Uh, you know, they have a, a duty to their client uh, to the extent possible. Maybe not always Bridget, um, but so we've got that. And then Sam Spade. I mean, then you get to Nick Charles, and he's not a detective at all. Right, he retired. Um, yeah, he's retired, and he doesn't really even want to be a detective. So. Right. The, now the story, the novel in between the two, Glass Key, the protagonist there is also not a detective. He's a political fixer um, in a kind of pseudo Baltimore city, and he also ends up solving a murder, but that isn't his job. It's just something he kind of falls into. So, so yeah, we've got Nick, and you know, it's my grandfather with the with the Continental Op. He was just struggling and poor and trying to keep it together with. The Maltese Falcon, he was just on the cusp of, of really hitting it big because the Red Harvest got great reviews um, and the Maltese Falcon, you know, even more so. So he was right at that cusp and that was his launch pad. And then he dives over the edge and now he's in New York and he is he's a very good looking, stylish man. Um, mm-hmm. You know, women loved him and he loved <laughs> women right back. Um, but uh, he could play that part. Um, but yeah, he often said he was happier, you know, out in the woods, you know, with the dog and a shot, you know, maybe hunting or making a campfire and cooking a piece of hamburger and a potato in the fire. Um, he uh, he he did. He liked the outdoors and kind of ordinary, natural, you know, things. He loved, you know, he had a lot of hobbies. He denied it, but he had, you know, photography <laughs> and he wanted to get a crossbow, bought a some um uh, earphones so that he maybe could hear insects in the woods he had they had lots of hobbies and things he mm-hmm. liked to do and read and um so why I've, would he deny I've, having hobbies <laughs> oh you know when you read interviews with him uh back in say the 30s they'll say you know do you have hobbies it goes well you know i like to drink and i like to play poker and oh. I loaf a lot. I'm really good at loafing. Loafing is my favorite uh, thing. And mm-hmm. so I, he was just playing a role. You know, he was, he was kind I of creating think, a persona mm-hmm. of himself. He was. Mm-hmm. He was. He didn't want to be an ordinary guy. He wanted, I think he was. You're right. He was creating his persona and he was stripping away the parts that didn't fit. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so he is complicit. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's interesting to, to think about how big of a personality he was and how well known he was kind of kind of like a Hemingway I mean Dashiell Hammett's on the cover right of the of the thing <laughs> which yes. to me is is incredible um so how how would, would that decision be made to say, okay, let's put a picture of the author on the Thin Man? Yeah, no, I, I can't speak to how the, the process went down, but I think they knew what they were doing in confusing the elements because my mm. grandfather is a tall, thin man. Mm. And then, you know, Nick Charles probably is tall and thin. And then we've got, of course, the real thin man is Clyde Winant, who's mm-hmm. dead before the book ever begins mm-hmm. so then we get to the movies and you've got William Powell is you know relatively tall and thin and then you get to the second movie 
the third movie after the thin man where they bring in the baby and mm-hmm. so he's the other thin man uh and so they you know they knew what they were doing they were milking mm-hmm. it um and you know my grandfather was very very good looking guy and very stylish mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. the ad if you go to youtube you can find the um the television ad or maybe it was in, probably not television in those days um uh where he's standing in the where they've got I've forgotten his name. It's standing in a in a book cover, and they're mm-hmm. talking. Uh, although it's, no, I take it back. It's not my grandfather because there's only one known voice recording um, of him. So, but they they do they mix it up, um, and people loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you mentioned the movie, and Carolyn and I. Well, Carolyn's seen it before, but for me, the first time watching yeah. The Thin Man was yesterday. <laughs> we watched it um, before this interview. And one of the things I was really struck by was the contrast between the books mm-hmm. and the movie. Like to me, one of the most remarkable things about the books was how he would write women. And man, they were bad. <laughs> they, were, they were like evil or murderous or like psychopathic. Would, you know, Mimi was beating up her daughter and oh, everyone yeah. was sort of sex crazed and you know, Dorothy was a mess. Oh, and none yeah. of all in the movie, the women were very—they were bare. Like Mimi kind of snatched Dorothy once. Tame by yeah. comparison. Oh, so Dorothy, in particular, when I read, oh, yeah. when I read the Thin Man, Dorothy leaps off the page as this very odd character, and I. Nora had the patience of a saint from my perspective and in the movie Dorothy is a completely different character yes yeah well this is the early days of the production codes too I don't think that they were fully organized yet but they Mm -hmm. were under constraints to not have as much drinking they couldn't have the sex Um, by the time you got to the the sequels they were objecting to the dog urinating on trees Uh, they you know they were different jokes and things that they couldn't do they couldn't mm-hmm. uh, disrespect authority figures or they weren't supposed to but there were literally checklists they would have you know this a little chart mm-hmm. and it would say, you know depictions of of authority figures and they would mark were they comedic were they serious were they corrupt mm-hmm. um and so they you know they it it was you know it was tough you still see think of ricky and lucy in separate beds right yeah. uh, and that was yeah, much Nick later and Nora were in separate beds yeah. too yeah yeah remember that yeah How? you couldn't do that which yeah why did they pick his books then that were so notably <laughs> kind of hard boiled to to sterilize and make into yeah well so the first Maltese Falcon came out in 1931, and it's not so sterilized. There are some sexier yeah, scenes know. in there. It is pre Hays Code. It's not a particularly good film. I like uh, the the Sam Spade character is oily and horrible, um, but the, the rest of it isn't terrible. But um, they do. She shows Bridget in a bubble bath. You know, mm. nothing on but bubbles. Um, so, and then the. 40 then so then but the Houston one doesn't come out until 41 so that's half a dozen years after the thin man is out mm-hmm. so it's a little and that's more into the film noir period mm-hmm. so this is um de- great depression so what they really want is something entertaining that people mm-hmm. will be willing to spend their their dime or whatever it takes to escape so they needed that escapist 
um, form. And yeah, they, they cleaned it up a little. Um, the screenwriters for the movie, um, Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, they were married, um, were regulars in Hollywood, and they were, by all accounts, nice people, which mm. was not all that common. Um, and they were true, true friends of my grandmother, and my mother remembers mm. meeting them and going to their house, and they mm. were... Um, they were truly friends of his, so it it nice. helped. But um, yeah, of course, yeah. after the third one, they they didn't want to write any more either. But uh, you know, that's why they put the baby in when that's they got to the was. end of the second one. Mm-hmm. They were so tired of writing those screenplays that they thought, well, we know we'll give him a baby, and that'll sh- that'll stop the whole franchise, right? <laughs> Back totally backfired. Was- People said, oh, we can't wait for the next one. So How strange to be. Anyways, they want to push away so much success. These, I mean, are, I think there are six movies. Yeah, yeah there are six, but it, yeah. they were just a little too much, too cute, too witty. You know, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. it was it was too much. I think uh, Frances said if she had to write one more, she was going to throw up all over her typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> so, and what did my grandfather say? Nobody ever wrote two more insufferably smug characters, and they can't take that away from me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. You mentioned he, he felt a little bit like he was selling out in Hollywood. Was he Was he just sort of hesitantly on board with things like remaking Dorothy's character? Or, you know, did he give uh, you approvals for all of that? How did the changes he, work? Um, his... Um, he didn't have much input, if any, on the first movie, the original, because mm. the book was already there. So Hackett and Goodrich wrote from the book and worked with Hunt Stromberg on that. When it came time for the sequels, my grandfather did write the screen treatments for the first two sequels, and he worked with uh, Halbert uh, and Francis with that. Um, he had a bad habit of getting drunk and not showing up, mm-hmm. um, but he was being paid... You know, he was living in a five-bedroom suite in the Beverly Hilton, or the Mm. Beverly Wilshire. Uh, He was being paid ridiculous amounts of money, and he was just drinking and partying and out all night. So those scenes where Nick Charles is waking up in the morning saying, I need a drink just to clear my head, um, that was my grandfather in those days. So he did manage to complete the two screen, screen treatments, like maybe a year or two apart, and both times... Um, he he dr- almost drank himself to death, and he had to be oh, put it hospitalized afterwards um, wow. in New York. So yeah, it was not something he was proud of or particularly enjoyed. Um, although you know, he could party with the best of them, but it it didn't make him happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 treatment of drinking in the book and also in the movie, it's I mean alcohol is everywhere and it's it's very liberally served and somebody wakes up in the middle of the night and they make themselves a cocktail and then Nick you know makes one for Nora and or Nora makes one for Nick and it's it's mind-boggling I mean just from like a reading and watching standpoint and yet it's fascinating at the same time that these two characters seem capable of functioning Mm -hmm. with so much you know so much liquor in their systems pretty much every waking hour yeah yeah no it is it is mind-boggling um absolutely so Mm -hmm. i can't he did drink a lot whether or not and i think he could hold his liquor quite a bit Mm -hmm. um and they said you know the characters are 
to some extent based on my grandfather and Lillian Hellman and their relationship. And they did have that kind of witty, intellectual, equal banter thing Mm -hmm. going on. And they both drank, although I can't imagine anyone surviving drinking at the level that Nick did. Um, Mm -hmm. It it, it does seem uh, almost impossible to function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but so, I, what always strikes me too the difference between the book and the movie is the speakeasies versus the mm-hmm. hotels and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, because the book comes out, what just he's writing it while prohibition is still enforced, the book mm-hmm. is published, and then immediate, almost immediately, prohibition is ended, and yeah. so they're making the movie. You know, they sold the film rights immediately, mm-hmm. and I think uh, what did I read? The Hackett's did the script in six weeks. Oh, wow. And, yeah, so they had that. Well, it's, it's already got all that great language in there. Um, did the, Wrote the script in six weeks, and then it only took, like, 19 days or something to shoot it. So uh, it, it was quick. It was it was really quick. Uh, and But in that time, things had already shifted. So mm-hmm. booze was not illegal anymore. Right. And so that they were able to clean. I think that probably helped with the censors a lot, the mm-hmm. production codes, because they were drinking in bars, not in speakeasies. Mm-hmm. Although the speakeasies look like a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah, his his books, all three of them are very, the three we've referenced, the three we've read in, in the Tetonic and Toxin Book Club, Red Harvest, The Maltese Falcon, and The Thin Man are so cinematic that you can, because of the dialogue and, you know, how fast-paced the events are you you can almost see those scenes they really come to life they lend themselves toward film treatments it seems yeah and my grandfather um had a habit of using um genuine geographical locations and buildings mm-hmm. and rooms i mean sam spade's apartment is my grandfather's apartment i mean with very mm-hmm. li- very little change um you can mm-hmm. walk through that's it's it's preserved now as a literary kind of monument oh, um cool. So, and some of the others you can walk, you know, the the locations in New York or in San Francisco, the uh, some of the other, anyways, did tend to do that. And you could walk through, he wrote a short story, a, a version, a Sam Spade story that's set in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's complicated, but he, and it, I, I have found the apartment where, the building where he was living, and it's, he uses that floor plan. Um, it's yeah. a it's a three level townhouse, and he, you can tell I, uh, it was up for sale, and so the blue the floor plan was online, and mm-hmm. I could I could walk the book right through there, so mm-hmm. um, so anyway so some of that f- real physical, you know he he would look around him, and write, accurately from what he observed. Mm-hmm. Julie, we're getting close to our time, but I, oh. I kind of want to. You said one of the most interesting quotes to me in one of the things we were reading. You said, one of my jobs in talking about my grandfather is to humanize him, to get beyond that iconic image. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Uh, yeah, so I guess, you know, if uh, maybe my job is to make him a round character and not a flat character. Mm-hmm. In terms of, in literary terms. So mm-hmm. it's very easy for people to say, oh, he was a drunk. Or, oh, he was a communist. Or, oh, he was just this hard-boiled writer. Um, and just kind of 
tune out the complexities. And, you know, we all do that uh, in different situations. Mm-hmm. But I think I want people to appreciate that he was a well-rounded person with many talents and many faults. Mm-hmm. And uh, n- I guess not to dismiss. It, and, you know, we've had, especially, you know, working with my grandfather, I've had to uh, accept his faults and learn to, to deal with it. You know, it's, it, it was what it was. Um, uh, but I guess I want people to, to know that, um, to, to appreciate that he was a man of his, that he was a brilliant man and a man of his times and a man with a lot of ghosts. So, um, I, I think one of the fun things that I do, and this kind of reminds me of it, is when I would go out and talk to and, and lecture in schools and libraries and so on, um, at the end of the whatever lecture I give, there was always time for a Q&A. And uh, that was fun, because then it's kind of like call and response or like free association. If I can't answer that, I'll try to give you a different story. But, um, you know, people ask screwball questions and you know how did he stay so thin what diet was he on and somebody else in in the back yells he had tb you fool uh so the the guy who comes and introduces me to his son who is named ashiel uh so uh but you know some guy wanted to know what his relationship was with richard nixon none basically uh so but it gives me a chance to kind of counter. Um, somebody said, well, I know he was one of the Hollywood Ten. I'm like, no. And they're like, oh, I know he went before Hueck. Uh, no. Uh, neither of those things are true. Or I, you know, I know, you know, he abandoned your grandmother. No. Um, so, you know, to, just to break down those stereotypes is um, very gratifying, I will say. And to comp- complicate his story in really human ways. Mm, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as any good writer would do. Right. right. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, well, Julie, we would love to have you on for a second episode, if you're willing. Uh, I'd, it would be delightful. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, I, I'm sure you agree. Mm-hmm. So I hope you will, uh, I don't know, tune in. I still use radio language. <laughs> <laughs> Turn up the dial. Yeah. yeah. Push the forward button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the next episode with Julie. I know she's going to share with us yeah. even more fascinating things about DeShiel and the Thin Man and all things Hammond. Yes, and you can learn more about the Thin Man and all our 2024 book selections at tetonicandtoxin.com and share your thoughts on our website or on Facebook and Instagram at Tetonic and Toxin. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Now we got some good ones. Mm-hmm. Until <laughs> next time. Thank you. Mysterious. Thanks, Julie.